One of the major parts of this evening, it's a different service. Uh, Steve isn't going to be preaching so much, but I know him. He's going to turn this into a preaching opportunity. He always does. Um, we're going to be hearing about BTI. You're going to hear those that acrostic regularly, which is our Bible Training Institute that we're going to be starting up in, uh, in September. There are some sign-up sheets in the back in here. And uh, when the service is over, if you have a chance, you want to write down your name and whatever level of interest. We've given you some options there. Just check off your name. And that is for men and women, as Steve will be uh, explaining a little bit more. One other last announcement is a parenting conference is coming up. It's our summer equipping conference. We're looking to do this on a regular basis, having conferences, inviting the community, and having it be for ourselves here for our own edification as well. But that's going to be July 26th through 28th, uh, Friday evening, Saturday morning, and then on Sunday morning. And it's going to be all about parenting. And and, uh, Steve and I are going to be blessed to bring some messages for that, looking forward to that time as uh, a good way to take Scripture, apply it to our lives, and, and have it uh, take us from there. Let's open the evening with a word of prayer, and then, uh, Steve, we're going to bring you up here. God, thank you for this evening, a chance to worship you throughout the whole day, and I pray that uh, not just Sundays that our hearts would be like that, but every single day, our entire lives would be one of uh, seeking after you, honoring you, putting you first in our lives to make you the important center that you need to be. God, forgive us for those times when we put ourselves there. And uh, may this evening be one that we can worship you because of what we hear, what we say, and uh, the way that we can enjoy our fellow brethren here in this place that you call Grace Bible of Bakersfield. In your name, amen. Well, I'm going to actually just kind of stay down here because this is a more informal time. And what we're going to do is uh, talk about... Uh, Bible Training Institute, and this is kind of a new thing here. It's not new to the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, Men have been training other men and women for uh, centuries, but we want to uh, do something here that's a little more formalized, a little more structured. Now, they say that uh, the only person who really likes PowerPoint is the one who had fun preparing it, uh, which is true, but I want to just have a few things up here to uh, guide our thoughts, and then when we're done with that, uh, I promised you we'll do a Q&A time. A couple of you have emailed me some questions, so I'll let you go first. Um, so if you have those questions, kind of be thinking about it, and you'll get to come up to this wonderful microphone and ask it, because we're going to uh, record this time for those who are not able to be here tonight. And if you stump me, which is highly likely, then we'll write those down, and I'll come back and answer them a different time. Well, let me just tell you kind of what the Bible Training Institute is about, and you can see this up here. This is kind of a motto of... I wanted to adopt to proactively accelerate the spiritual growth of Grace Bible Church for the purpose of knowing God more intimately and becoming more effective servants of God in the world. And it's very important that we put the knowing God more intimately part first. That we always learn the scriptures, we learn uh, what he has to say about himself, not just for our own edification, but so we just know him. And that was uh, what the Apostle Paul said that he wanted. So, Bible Training Institute essentially is we can go on to the next slide. Um, I want to just do a broad overview of the what, the why, and the how. And so that will hopefully give you a little bit of uh, what we're doing. So first, the what. Um, this is a little bit small, but basically, discipleship is only discipleship if there's a little bit of an expectation of involvement. That in other words, um, discipleship is not like a disease where you just walk by and catch it, Okay. You have to actively uh, decide you're going to be involved with it. We also want to make this a program that structures your 
uh, spiritual growth at an accelerated rate. Look, to be honest with you, most believers, they grow at a monumentally slow rate. They grow at whatever rate their pastor preaches to them once a week. And that's way too slow. Um, <clears throat> Paul told the church at Corinth, who, which was a two-year-old church at the time, he said, you should be teaching others by now. And so we want to accelerate our growth. Part of this also, and really this was the origin of this idea, but then uh, a lot of you ladies said you wanted to get in on this. The origin of this idea is to prepare men for ministry. And there is such a... Uh, such a dichotomy between the professional minister and the male church member. And there's this gulf in between them that shouldn't be. That somehow men have to have this special woo, something about them and then they have to go off to seminary. This is not what historically has been the leadership in the church. Men train other men to be leaders. And that's what we want to do. And then we also want just simply to have a means to be thrilled by the wisdom of God. And you will respond with a godlier life. You won't be able to help it. It will change your life. So then some other things about the... Uh, oh, we'll do the why now. That's the what. This is... It's important for us to understand this. Bible Training Institute is not an end in itself. In other words, this is not something that we do and you get to the end of Bible Training Institute and say... Well, I'm, I'm finished with discipleship. I'm finished with everything that I should do in the church. This is just the beginning. For now, at Grace Bible Church, we're going to, the leadership has decided to make this a major emphasis. But not so that we can build a glorious Bible Training Institute program. We're not going to build a seminary in the backyard or anything. I mean, maybe the Lord will do that. But ultimately, this is to prepare you for future ministry. This is to prepare you to be able to um, teach small groups here, to teach Sunday school, um, to be involved in ministry. By the time you get done with BTI, you will have more to share than you could share in five or ten years. You'll have plenty of material. And so really what this is, is we're emphasizing BTI now so that you doing ministry can be a priority later. Does that make sense? Ephesians 4.12, we equip the saints for the work of ministry. We also want to elevate God in your own heart and mind. And that's very simple. We learn more about Him and therefore uh, He becomes elevated, more exalted. When He's more exalted, what does He receive more from you? He receives worship. And so we want to be worshipers. We want to maximize our effectiveness and reward in heaven. You get 60, 70, maybe by grace, 80 years. Or if you're Lloyd, 180,000 years, right? Uh, I'm making fun of you, Lloyd, because you're living forever here. All right. God is good. But Christians so often, I believe, stand before the Lord, and they have so little to show for their lives. What BTI will do will light a fire under you where you, you have to do something. Because you'll be holding this gold in your hands, going, what do I do with this? I've got to do something with it. I've got to give it away somehow or another. And you'll see that worked out in your own life. This is a big reason for us to look a, a strong church is made up of well-taught deepened individuals. A strong church is not a strong church because they have a dynamic pastor or a great building or wonderful church uh, programs. That's the shell of a strong church. There are plenty of churches that have wonderful programs and you know a dozen full-time staff and all kinds of outward 
symbols of what the world sees as a strong church. But a truly strong church is simply a group of individuals who are deep in their faith in Christ. And so that's what we want to be. We want to be a strong church with deep, deep roots to live biblically informed lives before the Lord. Let me repeat that phrase, to live biblically informed lives. And then finally, it's important to me, and I hope it becomes important to you as well, to do our part to stop the bleeding of immaturity in the church of Jesus Christ. It's a shame. It shouldn't be. But in this day and age, you can't go move to a new city as somebody who has been well taught in the word without experiencing the frustration of how do I find a church that will teach me. And so we want to do our part to stop that. Moving on, um, these are the biblical reasons. I love 2 Timothy 2, too. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you catch the four generations? This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy, telling him to teach others who will be able to teach others as well. And so this is our mandate to make disciples. And then I love Proverbs 23, 23, buy truth and do not sell it, buy wisdom, instruction and understanding. In other words, make an investment in your own spiritual growth. Um, if you're into electronics, if you're a, a techno wizard type person, then you're the person who buys a new phone every year. That's great. Uh, when iPad you know, 17 comes out, you've already ordered it three months in advance. But we don't invest in our spiritual growth. We invest in everything else, but you still have the same Bible that you won in third grade Sunday school for saying John 3.16, and um, we invest in it. And so you'll invest in time, you'll invest with some of your resources. Moving on, um, here's the how. First of all, what's the cost? We're not charging any tuition or anything like that. I mean, the cost is very simple. You'll purchase your own books. Um, when you're in seminary, I learned the trick. Amazon.com is a seminary student's best friend because, frankly, theology books are books that nobody buys. And so you can go online and get an 800-page book for $1.95. Okay? Um, if you are somebody who absolutely just can't afford to get the books, let us know. You, you should not, not go through BTI simply because you didn't have 20 bucks for a book. We'll get you the books. Um, we will accept donations for each session to help with childcare. You don't need to be dealing with your children while uh, we're trying to learn the Word of God. And then you'll have, obviously, the cost of your time, effort, and commitment, which we'll talk about shortly. <clears throat> now, this is uh, very small, so just squint here. Here's how we're going to do this. There are really two basic ways of learning. And let me talk about learning, first of all. Sometimes that's perceived as a, as a bad word in the church. Well, I'm not here for lectures. I'm not here to uh, be taught. I'm here to be preached to. And, th and that is true to a certain degree. But uh, Romans 12 tells us to be renewed in our what? In our minds. That involves effort. That involves a craft of thinking hard about what we do and who we are. And so we're going to utilize two major styles of learning. One you might call the Greek style of learning. The Greek style of learning is what we're doing right now. You're sitting and listening and taking in information and beginning to process it in your own mind. And so this part will include lecture. Now, don't be afraid of that word, okay? Lecture is important. It's, it's how we learn things in this particular style. Um, I would encourage you to take notes. You can use paper, your iPad, laptop, if you're an older generation, stone, tablet, chisel, whatever you need to use. Um, 
you're receiving and processing information in your mind. And what we'll do also is you will have reading to do that goes along with what I'm talking about in the lecture time. In other words, the chapters you get in the theology book you're going to get go exactly with what I'm talking about in the lecture, but I'm not going to read from the book. It's going to be two different things going into your mind from two different directions and helping to solidify what you're learning. But then we're going to use the second half of the evening, the Hebrew style of learning. Hebrew style of learning is where you do the homework, you do the reading, and you come back and you share with a group what you've learned. And you process it out loud. You're not listening as much as you're speaking. And you're engaging with, with each other to understand what you learned. And you would, will do this by processing information in active discussion and homework assignments. And I'll give a little more detail about that shortly. So here's how we're going to do it. We'll call it 774. <clears throat> seven Friday evenings in the fall, seven Friday evenings in the spring, four Friday evenings in the summer. And we'll do that twice. Now you say, that doesn't seem like very many. This is going to be a seminar style where, in other words, you'll have two, sometimes three weeks in between this time and you'll have reading to do and you'll have uh, some, some assignments, some applied theology assignments. And so really what this does is give you the opportunity to process this information in your own mind and in your own heart um, in between time. From the beginning of September to the end of the year, there are 17 Friday evenings. We're asking for seven of them. And so if Fridays are difficult for you, you schedule your other things at the other, uh, the other 10. If Friday is your date night with your sweetheart, then that's great. Um, make some of those dates coming to learn the Word of God. And that'll be good. You can go out for a soda afterwards. We're going to go from 6 to 8.30 p.m., and that is going to be highly structured. I will do my part to start right on time and to go through each uh, session very, very crisply. There will be reading and homework in between sessions. And again, if right now you're going, I don't want to come to church to do homework, just wait and see what you're going to be doing. Okay, next slide there for us. So here's what we'll do. From 6 to 6.40, for two years, we're doing systematic theology. That is taking, we're going to spend a few weeks on just theology proper, the theology of God himself, and we're going to go through every topic in theology. Second half, this is still the Greek style lecture time, we'll do in-depth Bible survey. Then we're going to take a quick break, and you can get snacks, whatever, very quickly. And this is when we'll now break up into what we're calling our applied theology time. Theology is useless unless we apply it to our lives. And applied theology will be when we break up into men and women separately. And there will be, uh, very often you'll be doing the same thing, but there's just a freedom of discussion and a freedom of interaction when the genders are separated, because there's different issues for different genders. Uh, later on in the summer, I'm going to give you an orientation packet that will outline exactly what's going on in a little bit more detail. All right, next, here's what we're doing. In systematic theology, the first part, 6 to 640, over two years, here's what we're going to cover. And don't worry if you don't know what all those ologies are. By the time you're done with BTI, you'll know what they all are. You'll be able to give a definition. You'll be able to talk intelligently about them. Bibliology, that is... What do you think bibliology is? How we got our Bible. That's right. Do we need bibliology to prove that the Bible is God's Word? No. But it's very, very encouraging to us to just be open-mouthed at God's wisdom in giving us a Bible. 
We'll do theology proper. That is the study of God. Christology. What do you think that is? All right. Pneumatology. What about that one? Holy Spirit. Spirit. That's right. If you've ever thought about pneumonia, right? That's uh, speaking of wind, of air, and the Holy Spirit is spoken of as that. Uh, Anthropology. That is the study. That's not the study of bones that we're going to dig up. Uh, That is the study of the nature of man. You must have a grasp of anthropology to be able to share the gospel effectively. Um, Angelology. We think that one is just a tough one. All right. Hamartiology. Now that's the tough one. Sin. That's right. Yeah, I've been those as ologies. Soteriology. The study of salvation. We're going to spend the most time on that one. We will go extensively in depth. There's an entire theology you're going to read that's just on that topic. Ecclesiology, that is the study of the church. Eschatology, the study of end times. And I've I've spent a lot of time in my uh, adult life studying the theology of worship. And it's important for us as Christians, so we're putting that in there as well. We'll do major biblical covenants, and we will study the kingdom of God. At the end of two years, you will have a grasp of theology like I promise you, you don't have now. And you will uh, greatly benefit from this. Then the next section, Bible survey, this is very simple. We'll go from Genesis and go through Revelation. And it'll take us uh, uh, two years to do that. We'll go through the purpose of each book, the major themes, chronological place in history, the structure of the book. And every book has some difficult interpretive issues. We're going to cover all of them, okay, and and give some, some answers to those. During this time, part of your reading will be what I'm calling personal Bible reading survey. I'm not going to ask you to, okay, this week, read all of Genesis, next week, all of Exodus. I think you'll be dropping like flies if we do that. But I am going to give you a survey method to go through all of Scripture as we go through it together. Because what's the use of studying the Bible about the Bible if we're not in it um, in the first place? Okay, then the next section, Applied Theology. Here are the topics we're going to study together, separated as men and women. And the the women's side is still being developed. We've developed the first year, haven't gotten to the second year yet, so we have some time. We will study, first of all, prayer. We will study that in depth together and interact about that. We're going to study the concept of growing in the Word, um, increasing our listening skills. That's important. We're going to study marriage. We're going to study prayer. Again, it's important in the life of you as an individual. It's important in the life of the church. We'll study evangelism. Men, we will study leadership. Men, we will study Bible study methods. Now, I'm going to do a preemptive strike. I know a few ladies are going to say, wait a minute, I want to study Bible study methods too. We may do that, and you can get the book we're going to use. Um, But right now, my focus is on, on beginning to train some men. And with the men, we're going to do Bible lesson presentation. We may do that with the ladies too, but again, I want to focus in on men who are to be the leaders in the church. We will do a section on biblical counseling, and then the ladies, uh, there will be some other studies that we're still uh, working through. Then moving on, uh, here are some of the books we'll use for Bible Training Institute. You don't have to try to remember these. I just want to give you a broad overview. I looked through about uh, two or 300 books to choose 12 or 13 that I felt like were the best value and gave you the most. There, there are certain books that are, um, have great chapters, but I wanted to give you the best value. We will use, of course, our Bibles. That will be our first text. We will use Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. It's a very accessible uh, book that's easy to read, broken down into little sections. 
We will use a call to spiritual reformation by D.A. Carson, expository listening by Ken Ramey. That will be the first uh, semester, fall one. We'll call them fall one, spring one, summer one, fall two, spring two, summer two. And uh, you can write these down if you want. These are the ones that uh, we would use the first time through. Basic theology, call to spiritual reformation, expository listening. And then we'll use the exemplary husband, the excellent wife, John MacArthur's Lord Teach Me to Pray. Uh, The best book on evangelism I've ever read, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. It's my favorite one ever. And then uh, moving on, uh, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons by a long name that I'm not going to try to uh, pronounce. It's a good book, but I can't pronounce his name. Um, The Cross and Salvation by Bruce Demarest. It's about this thick and it's all about soteriology. It's all about our salvation. You will be enriched and just, just really fall in love with Christ all over again through this book. Uh, Called to Lead by John MacArthur. Key book written in recent years about church leadership, the trellis and the vine. Uh, Men, you're going to enjoy that. How to Study the Bible by Richard Mayhew. Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer. It's a biblical counseling book by Paul Tripp. And then a couple more books for the ladies. And then I'm also going to give you access to some journal articles specifically about the major covenants in the Bible. Let me put it to you this way. If you understand the covenants in the Bible, you understand the Bible. If you understand God's working through his covenants, you can look at your Bible from Genesis to Revelation and have a big picture of what this is about. Um, How many of you here, and I'll raise my hand at this as well, have ever in your lifetime, certainly not now, but ever in your lifetime done the hunt and peck method of reading your Bible? Going, all right, let's see it. There we go. And what's the problem with that? You read 2 Chronicles 8. And you start reading about Solomon building the house of the Lord. Well, what's the context of that? How does that fit? And you know what happens if you don't have a big context? You start spiritualizing scripture. And what you do is you say, Solomon had built the house of the Lord in his own house. God, you want me to build a house. You want me to build your house first, so I'll give my 1% to the church, and I'm going to give my other 99% uh, to build my own house. If you don't have a context, you begin pulling scripture out of context. What understanding the covenants will do will give you a a real clear understanding of what the Bible says in its context to the people who read it originally and to us in our context now. That's what covenants will do. All right, then moving on here. Um, Why homework? Why would I subject this to you? Is this a big bait and switch? Grace Advance sends you a pastor who's now going to torture you with things to do. The only way to learn is to process things multiple times. That's how we learn, right? Um, guys, when you were getting ready to uh, propose to your wife, uh, your wife-to-be, you practiced over and over again. You said, honey, I would like for you to be my wife. Honey, I would like for you to be my wife. Honey, I'd like for you to be my wife. And then you got up there and said, honey, I would like for you to be my wife. But, but you had the information in here. So we want to process it multiple times. Look, you're going to be so blessed when something goes through your mind and your heart one time, it's a blessing. When it goes through the fifth time, it gets sunk into your heart in ways that nobody can ever take away from you. Um, When I was in college, there was a a young man who um, didn't believe that you should be dependent on the Word of God. He he said that, uh, you know, people who had their Bibles with them all the time. They're, they just have crutches. 
And so we're having this conversation, and with a big grin on his face, he reached over and took my Bible away from me and said, Ha, what would you do now? And I said, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, the nails were driven deeply home. I didn't need my pages in the Bible because they were driven home already, and that's what we want to do. Another reason to do homework is to apply what you learn in an immediate, concrete way. That's so important for us. Applied theology is very important to you and to me. We want to increase your personal investment, and therefore you increase the return. Look, it's just like, it's just like a savings account. The more money you put into it, the more interest you will earn. It's that simple. And then finally, um, for the men in particular, we want to have a measuring tool for participation. Because down the road, um, if you've been at Grace Bible Church as a man for any length of time, uh, we're going to ask that you have been through Bible Training Institute in order to be in positions of leadership. And you know, showing up two out of seven times, not doing any homework, never doing any reading, and doing that for two years, and then saying, I finished Bible Training Institute. No, you didn't. Uh, you showed up a few times. So we want a measuring tool, and homework is one way to do that. All right, so what kind of homework? You're going to notice a word here a lot. Bible reading, theology reading, applied theology reading. And I'm going to, in our orientation time, the first night give you my method for reading. It involves, it's very complicated, it involves using a red pen and a highlighter. And you read a book the way you're having a conversation. I mean, I'll speak out loud to the book I'm reading. I'll I'll read a sentence, this is good, why is this important? I'll circle it, put a question mark by it, highlight it. And as you read in that fashion, you'll begin to sink this information in. Uh, We'll have an accountability reading sheet that in class... uh, You'll come and we'll have a sheet that's handed around and it'll say something like, uh, before God under threat of eternal punishment. No, we won't say that. Um, (laughs) I did my reading or I did half of it or no, I didn't do it this week, but I will. And you'll have an opportunity to get caught up on the reading as well. We're not merciless completely. We'll have an accountability church attendance and BTI attendance sheet. That way we can have a record that you're here. Um, But here's the thing. If... If uh, you go through BTI faithfully, but you're in church once every six weeks, that doesn't count. Uh, We gather first to worship and second to equip. And then we'll have applied theology assignments. This won't be every time. Uh, This will be, uh, for example, during the the session we do on prayer. Of course, there's going to be some assignments about prayer. And so we want to work through that together. And then we'll have an end-of-semester project. And that, that sounds a little bit scary, but all that is is you taking all the notes that you took and combining them together and turning them in on real paper. That's another way for it to process through your mind. And so you'll get it through lecture, you'll get it through reading, you'll get it through processing this in your mind. And when you get to the end of every semester, you would be able to stand up and teach this, which is the goal from 2 Timothy 2.2. Um, and, and in case that scares you, that's why, uh, that's why we're taking time in between two weeks or so between each session. Okay, there's two tracks that you can go on, because I, I don't want anybody to feel like they can't go through this. The first track we're calling somebody who would enroll, and I would encourage you to do this unless it's, you're just absolutely unable to do this. This means you're doing all the reading, you're committing to come uh, pretty much every time, um, and you're, we'll, we'll track your progress. At the end of the completion of all six semesters, uh, we get a certificate. We're going to have a little graduation, and you will go down in our records here as being eligible um, as a man for more discipleship and spiritual leadership. 
uh, up to and including eldership if biblically qualified. Or you can be someone who comes and audits. Um, that just means, audit is just a Latin word that means to listen. And so that's somebody who, if you want to be this person, just come and attend when you can, listen and do the reading as you can. Um, but if the only reason you're auditing is because you're scared, then that's, that's not good. So come and be brave and try to enroll if you can. Some of you will enroll and life will happen. And halfway through, you're going to tell me, I need to, I need to change over to audit. That's fine. But if you start off auditing and you're halfway through and you haven't done any of the assignments, you can change over to enroll, but it's going to be tough to catch up uh, at that point. Um, and if you audit, it will kind of limit your participation in the applied theology time because it, you know others have done the reading and they're talking about what they're processing. And if you haven't, then that's going to be a little tough. Okay, just about finished here. Reasons people say, I can't be discipled. I don't have time. This is too much work. I'm not smart enough. Takes too much time away from family. I just want to grow in the Lord, not take a class. Um, I think we can all f- figure out why those are sometimes excuses for us, and we want to just be mindful of that. Um, let me give you a couple of tips, and then we'll be done here with this part on being successful at this. There is a big jump from people who say, I want to grow in the Word, and when somebody like myself asks you to jump the chasm into making a personal investment, there's a lot of fear. If any of you were ever little and you had to try to jump over a big puddle or something, you remember that fear of jumping over. And so we have to help allay some of those fears. Um, go on to the next slide there. Here's how you can do this. If you make the commitment and just decide this is part of my life for a while, you will be so blessed. It will just become a part of who you are, part of your schedule. Um, one concern a couple have brought up to me is I'm married, I need to spend time with my wife. I would encourage you, if you're married, to schedule your homework time together, to sit and read together, trade off books, you can save money on books too that way, um, and, and work at the same time. One thing I discovered being in seminary is that uh, we have a lot more time than we think we have. If you're a person who takes an hour for lunch and you sit and stare at your ramen noodles uh, for an hour or you watch TV, or you're watching YouTube, that's five hours a week that you could be doing something else. Um, eat while you're doing something. You can find time to do this. Cut out some TV, cut something out. Um, decide to cut something out during each semester, and that will give you the little bit of extra time that you would need. I would also encourage you to consider this a devoted time to the Lord, and let it be a motivation to increased prayer. This is not meant to be overly difficult, but neither is it meant to be easy. Because anything that easy is easy doesn't have a payoff, right? If you could invest a penny in the stock market and become a billionaire, we'd all be billionaires. But if you work hard and make an investment, then the return will be there. Well, what do we do now? Um, you can register at least initially by signing up in the back. We're going to use email, a mass email list, as our means of communication with you uh, throughout the whole course of BTI. Um, later, I will put together an orientation packet that we'll give out to you. Um, the Friday dates, we're still establishing those. I think we're close, but as soon as we announce those, start putting them in your calendar now and start arranging your life around them. And then if you want to, you can order the books and start reading ahead. Uh, maybe the major one to get would be Ryrie's uh, Basic Theology and get started in that. Read ahead. Let's see. Do we have anything else? Is that it? Are we done? Okay, we're done. That's BTI.
Um, real quickly, any questions about that? And we're going to go a little long tonight. We expected that. That's okay. But any questions? Ben? Yeah, we will do that. Um, by the way, Grant is going to uh, act as kind of our administrator for uh, BTI. He's going to take care of those sorts of details because I'm not good at that part. Um, so, yes, we will do that. We'll, we'll probably email out a list as well. So, What other questions, BTI questions? All right. We're going to switch gears here for a few minutes, and we're going to go a few minutes over. That's okay. If you, if you have to leave, you can. Uh, we won't think too badly of you. Um, but some of you had asked for us to have a Q&A time and uh, just to answer some questions. And I'm going to ask you to come up to the mic. Now, I had uh, one person emailed me, and so I'm going to let Dave come up and ask your question to start with, and uh, I'll do my best to answer. So anybody else who wants to ask a question as soon as Dave is done, come on up here. Uh, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In this case, the first shall be first. So come on up, Dave. Okay, Pastor, see if I can stump you on this one. <laughs> uh, the context of this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is uh, a teaching, and he gets to that part of his teaching we're all kind of familiar with, you know, the part about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, kind of that section. And uh, harmonizing Luke uh, 6.30 and Matthew 5.42, he instructs us to... Give to everyone who asks you, from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. Now, I'm looking for some real-world application for that because uh, you can't exit a parking lot or get off a freeway without somebody holding a sign wanting money. And... uh, as an example, suppose you have a brother-in-law that's got the big loser tattoo on his head <laughs> and wants to borrow money from you, and you know you'll never see it again. The Lord's uh, commanded us to be good stewards of the resources he's given us, and making that loan would not be a good uh, use of that resource. So I'm asking for real-world uh, application on how do we keep from all being homeless if we took these Passages to an extreme. <laughs> From all being homeless, that's good. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> well, the key here is it's always context, right? In the context of Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who begs from you, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The context is that this is the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and he began with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is all about kingdom citizenship. It's all about how kingdom citizens are different than religious frauds. That kingdom citizens are those who act in a certain way. And he gives an example of that certain way in verse 38. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus was very clear. He said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The context of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament law is simply justice given out by the governing authorities. That in other words, if I rob your house, then I should be expected by the governing authorities to pay back that which I have stolen. That is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. 
what the religious frauds of the day, the Pharisees in particular, they used out of context, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, to justify self-righteous behavior, to justify even vengeance, to justify um, me deciding to never forgive you, to never treat you in a way that is becoming that somebody who loves the Lord, who is humbly serving Yahweh. And so in other words, if you came up to me and struck me in the face because you were angry with me, those religious frauds would say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Ha, you are on my blacklist. You will never enter my house again. You will never be part of my family again. You will never be part of who I I am. You're out of my circle. You're out of my life. I'm going to pretend I don't know you. But Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer him your other one as well. That you're different now. You're a kingdom citizen. You don't belong to yourself. He gave four examples, I believe. Don't resist the one who is evil. If, he, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is saying your rights don't matter anymore. You're a kingdom citizen. You're a slave of Christ. And so uh, somebody wants to take things away from you. Okay, that's all right. Let them take everything. Because the Lord can return it anyway. It's a difference in attitude. Uh, the third example, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now there's a, a, a contextual issue here. During the Roman occupation of Israel, it was forced upon uh, Palestine that a Roman soldier could go up to you as a citizen and say, carry all my stuff. But Rome wasn't completely heartless they limited their soldiers to being able to make you carry things for a mile. And so you, they could say that you carry all my stuff for a mile. And the new attitude of a kingdom citizen says, I will not only carry it for you for a mile, how about I carry it for two? And while I'm doing that, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. And let me tell you about my Savior, Jesus Christ. The fourth example is give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The religious frauds saw the poor as those who were cursed by God. They saw the poor as those who God had withheld blessing from. And so, well, I'm not going to associate with you. No, I'm not going to help you at all. Rather than seeing the poor and those in difficulty as somebody that we're to have compassion on because they're, uh, they're except for the grace of God, go I. It's, it's talking about a change in attitude and Dave probably I think you brought up the best answer is that we do balance that with what Proverbs tells us about being careful with our money um, that we don't lend money uh, without being you know really careful about it I would say as a Christian just unless you're a banker don't lend money just give it away okay because it comes between you and the person if you lend money out you're going to uh, see that as a difficulty. Um, but Jesus says, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It doesn't mean that every person on earth who comes to you to uh, First National Bank of Dave has to be given money. You're, you're wise with it. But what it reflects is a complete change in attitude that you don't own yourself anymore. You don't own your stuff anymore. You're a steward of God's things, of God's life. And so it's a, it's a difference in attitude that was not common in Palestine and Israel at the time. Does that help at all? So your money is safe, Dave. You can... uh, You're okay. That's true. Yes. Well... 
That's true. I don't, I'll have to look that up. That's interesting. Um, yeah, David mentioned that uh, John MacArthur's commentaries don't comment on those particular verses, or probably the study Bible. The study Bible, yeah. All right, good question. I don't know if we can top that one. Who else has a question? You can either come up here or just yell it out and I'll... Uh... Well, we have a young man over here with a question. What's your question? Say it again, buddy. God protects your money. That's a great question. You know what it's like? It's like God tells us that your money doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to Him. And so we have to be very, very smart with how we use it because it's not ours. It's His. That's right. From the mouths of babes come wisdom. That's right. Very good, young man. All right. Other questions? Anything? You take, take the next question. Yeah, that's good. I got several emails from some of you, so don't chicken out on me now. Gabe. Yeah, that's very interesting because it says, uh, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Um, probably the one doing the suing is the one in complete and total power. And rather than fighting back against that, you just say, fine, if, if you're going to take it anyway, then take it all. Um, there's a couple of issues involved with that. Uh, probably one that comes up in some of your minds is uh, 1 Corinthians 6 that talks about um, not taking one another to court. And that's often brought up as, uh, as an issue against ever using our judicial system. First of all, the context of that was in the context of the church, somebody saying, oh, you know what? I'm mad at you. I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to use the judicial system as my own personal means of revenge. Now, that is not a correct use of the judicial system. That if you have, in your mind, been wronged, if you go to McDonald's and you spill coffee on your lap, you as a Christian don't get to go try to make millions of dollars off that because all that is is revenge. Asking them to pay your medical costs, maybe so. Um, that's fine. But the heart issue is, is this, an, is this a revenge issue? Am I trying to take vengeance on somebody by making them absolutely pay? Um, I'll tell you an issue that's personal to me, and I'll get directly to your question. Um, my dad was killed in a car accident, and it was very clearly the fault of the, the other person who crossed four lanes of traffic and rammed into my dad's car head-on. And there were four other vehicles involved in the accident, um, some of whom had major injuries. One young lady who was in the car behind my dad had the bones in her legs crushed into just a thousand pieces. And so... Uh, the issue was, do you sue that family for something that the kid did? He was 16 years old. Do you sue the family uh, for vengeful purposes? Um, 
I, I didn't believe in that. Uh, unfortunately, that's what happened. And now the parents of that kid, for the rest of their lives, will be paying uh, tens of thousands of dollars to four different parties um, because of that one thing. As far as somebody suing you, um, we are responsible for God's resources. They, they have been given to us. If you know in your heart you were wrong and you're being sued, what does Scripture say? Don't go to court. Go to them and say, I was wrong. I want to make this right with you. What do I need to do to make it right? And I'm not just trying to avoid a court appearance. I'm just trying to make things right. If it's somebody who's just trying to get God's money away from you, then I think the prudent thing to do is to uh, use reasonable means to steward God's money in the right way and to not allow that to happen, particularly if it's for an unrighteous reason. So every, every instance is going to be a wisdom issue. But no, it's not just lay down and... and uh, be run over completely, but uh, you examine your heart. If you're the one doing the suing, you better have really, really good reason. Um, by the way, this is a, a separate issue. Uh, the call in 1 Corinthians 6 to not use the court system does not mean that you don't turn in another Christian who has broken the law. Um, the question is often asked, what do you do with a person in the church who has uh, been found guilty of you, you know, for example, that they have been a child abuser of some sort. What do you do? You call the cops because they broke the law and they need to uh, be accountable to that. Um, so we, we do use the judicial system when the law has been broken. That is, that is certainly biblical. Good question. Ben's on his way up. Um, in Exodus, Aaron, at the foot of Mount Sinai, makes a golden calf while Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments, right? Everybody's familiar with that story. Um, and yet, he is still retained as the, the high priest, per se. And I was just always confused as why, why was he not disqualified from that because of that action? Well, I think, first of all, Moses only had one brother, so God didn't have anybody else to choose from. That's probably not the, not the real answer. Let me find that. golden calf Um, yeah that's from Exodus 32 when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him up make us gods who shall go before us as for this Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt we do not know what has become of him so Aaron said to them take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives your sons your daughters and bring them to me well you recall that after uh, Aaron went through all of this they made the golden calf the Lord said to Moses go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt God places the blame at Moses' feet here at this time Uh, they have turned aside quickly uh, out of the way that I have commanded them they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said these are your gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt Um, we don't want to take any responsibility away from Aaron but you'll notice the responsibility in God's eyes was laid at the feet of the people, not at Aaron. Now you have to understand, not that we would excuse him, but we're talking about two to three million people um, who are all demanding this to happen. And Aaron caved. You know, he, he bought into it. Um, one thing that's important to understand is that it's probably likely that it wasn't so much that Israel, this doesn't excuse it, it wasn't so much that Israel decided that they didn't believe in Yahweh anymore, they were going to believe in somebody else or something else. They grew up in a system where 
gods were tangible, that they were something you could see, touch, and feel. And so this was a whole new, different experience for them. They grew up in an Egyptian system that was uh, obviously very corrupt and pagan. And there is a sense in which um, Moses is gone. He's their only connection to Yahweh, as far as they're concerned. And he's gone. He's not coming down. And so there's a real sense of insecurity that we've got to do something. And they jumped right to idolatry. They jumped right to making something that made them feel better, that they could see, that they could touch. Now, why was Aaron not disqualified? I don't think Scripture really answers that. I just know that the Lord is gracious and that he had called Aaron to be a class of priests and that his sons would then uh, carry on the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, We know that Aaron uh, obviously uh, must have... Uh, at least by default, uh, we can intimate that he had a time of repentance. If he had said, I like the golden calf, forget Yahweh, we want to worship the calf. I don't think Aaron would have lived about three more minutes. So there was clearly a time of repentance at that point. Uh, the Lord sent a plague upon the people because they had made the calf. And then he does say the one that Aaron made. And so there is a sense of um, There's a sense of making sure that we know that he had a part in the responsibility. I would liken this to uh, King David, who was a murderer and who was an adulterer, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. And so it is an example of grace, but that's a great question. That doesn't mean, by the way, we don't take everything that's descriptive and make it prescriptive. This doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as disqualifying actions in ministry. Um, What this means is that in this instance, God showed grace that was outside the bounds of what we would consider normal? Good question. Other questions? You can say it out loud or come up to the microphone if you're brave. Yes, ma'am. Oh, what a great question. Okay, let me repeat the question for uh, recording. Essentially, if God is immutable, if he never changes, if he is all-knowing, all-powerful, knows everything, Jesus as God knows completely the mind of the Father, why did he say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Why did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me answer the Aramaic question first. That one's easy. I don't know. Don't have a clue. Um, Probably on the cross, as he's suffering, Jesus isn't thinking, you know, I wonder what language I should cry out in here so everybody can really understand me. Um, There's quite a debate as to whether Jesus spoke primarily Aramaic, spoke primarily Hebrew, or spoke primarily Greek. I think the best answer is that almost everybody in that day and age knew all three languages. And so uh, it was not uncommon to... um, you know, here in the in the southern part of the United States, it's not uncommon to mix Spanish and English, and you you hear people mixing those two together. That was common. Then uh, you could have a conversation that included Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, all kind of rolled into one. But as far as the issue of why did Jesus say this, well, sometimes the best way to approach a problem uh, in Scripture, problem meaning a a uh, an interpretive difficulty, is to mark off that which it can't be. 
Okay? So, the first thing it can't be is that Jesus was surprised and didn't understand what was happening to him. We understand that he knew precisely what was happening. He doesn't, uh, he is all-knowing. He didn't come to earth and suddenly get arrested and go, what? What's going on? I thought I was going to be taking the throne here any moment. He repeatedly said that he was going to die and after three days be raised again. By the way, Jesus never predicted his death without also predicting his resurrection in the same sentence every time. So we can mark that off. It's not that he um, didn't understand what was happening. I think we can also mark off uh, the possibility that Jesus was confused at the moment, that maybe he was delirious and, and had forgotten what was really happening. That's been put out there as a theory uh, that uh, because of the beatings and because of uh, being kept up all night, he hadn't slept all evening, uh, that he was delirious, that he was hallucinating and didn't understand what was happening. Um, that, would, that would put Jesus in the realm of somebody who was crazy at the moment and we can't listen to what he says. I think the best answer uh, really lies in really our own experience. When you have something difficult happen to you, especially something that is incredibly painful, what's the first question you want to ask the Lord? Why? Right? You want to ask why. The entire book of Job is one giant why question. God never answers the question to Job, by the way. He goes through his life. Job is amazingly blessed and all of a sudden his whole life comes crumbling down and um, he suffers for a period of years horrible suffering physically and financially and then all of a sudden he has double everything that he had before double the uh, wealth double the uh, um, all that he had and even some say double the number of years that he was 70 years old when he was afflicted and lived another 140 years what was going on with that? Job never found out until he went to heaven and had probably the biggest aha moment in all of history. You go, wow. So Jesus wasn't, he wasn't trying to gather information. He wasn't trying to figure out what was happening, but what he was doing was simply expressing the uh, absolute pain in his own heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I think it's very, very key that he does not address God as his father in this moment because at this moment God the father is not acting as a father he is acting as judge and he is uh, pouring all of the wrath due all sinners who would ever ask for forgiveness and cramming an eternity of punishment into three hours on the cross Um, there's a general theory that Uh, We even sing a song. I like the song. We won't get rid of the song, but um, that the Father turned his face away. Have you heard that? I don't think that's the case at all. I think what was so horrifyingly real to Jesus Christ at that moment was that for the first time in all of eternity, he did not face God as his Father. He faced God as a judge. And he, in some way that we're only barely uh, given uh, information about in Scripture... He faced directly the wrath of God on our behalf, a terrifying, horrifying prospect. And the fact that he only said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, um, is an indicator of his strength and his willingness to uh, go uh, to the Lord on our behalf. You remember in the garden, 
uh, of Gethsemane the night before, the evening before. He said, Father, if it's possible, he addresses God as Father because he knew this moment was coming. Father, if it's possible, let this cut pass from me, right? That didn't mean that Jesus wasn't going to go through it. He didn't mean that he was begging God to let him out. He said, if there's another way, already knowing that there's not another way. But he said, if there's another way, could we do that? Look, Jesus is perfectly God, but he was also perfectly human. And he is perfectly human. And in his humanity, he expressed the welling up pain in his own heart, the despair at what was about to come to him. Look, he knew every moment of what was going to happen. He knew the agony. He knew what it was going to feel like when the nails went in the wrists, went in his hand. He knew what that was going to feel like. And so, uh, long answer to your question, it is simply an expression of his own agony. It's an expression of um, uh, really the own, his own, uh, I, I don't want to say fear, but his own uh, Difficulty at having to face what he's about to face, and it was a it was a horrible moment. Ben, you had a follow up question. Well, yeah, I, I always thought he was quoting Psalm twenty two one, also he, he is he's he's quoting Psalm twenty two, and and there's other parts of Psalm twenty two that that are very much um, a part of that. I don't think, and there's there's debate about this. I don't think that Jesus number one purpose again was to say oh okay it's this time we've got to fulfill psalm 22 now we got to take care check that one off the list i think that being so intimate intimately familiar with scripture he simultaneously fulfilled the prophecy of psalm 22 but also was just speaking scripture in his agony um you know as you grow in the lord you pray scripture more and more and this becomes natural to you, and it should be. So, yeah, he fulfilled the prophecy. I think maybe that was secondary. His first purpose was he was simply expressing his heart uh, using that. Good questions. Another question from the short row. What have you got for us? <laughs> okay, he just asked the greatest theological question of all time. Why did God let Satan take control of the whole earth? Well, I think the best answer to that is God is holy. It means that he can't sin, right? He's perfect. But if you're going to demonstrate some of the attributes of God, some of the qualities of God, like um, his mercy and his grace and uh, his kindness, there has to be some trouble that people are in in order to have grace and mercy and kindness demonstrated. There is one thing that angels have in common with us, and that is that they are worshipers of God. There is one thing that angels don't have in common with us, in that they can never sing the glories of God's salvation. They can never understand what it's like. In fact, First Peter says that uh, our salvation is something in which angels long to look and understand. They don't understand that because they've never been sinners, uh, those who are holy angels. So the short answer, why did God uh, allow Satan to take over the world? Short answer is that basically God allowed the greatest, most hideous, most heinous enemy in all of history to rise to power so that God could then show himself to be above that show himself to be all-powerful. And through that, he allowed, he didn't cause, but he allowed 
sin to come into the world so that he could demonstrate love and kindness and, by the way, so that he could demonstrate his wrath against those who would reject him. And so, by sovereignly allowing this plan of creating Adam and Eve and knowing full well that they would reject his law, he had one law and they broke it. Don't eat from the tree. They eat from the tree. Knowing that that would happen, it was all part of God's plan. The Bible and redemptive history is not God's plan B. When Eve was reaching for the fruit, God was going, no, 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 no. He wasn't doing that. He wasn't saying, oh, we got it. All right, plan B, quick, powwow, huddle up. That was part of his plan. Because basically he made and allowed an enemy so great that God could show himself to be even bigger. Does that make sense? Good question. High theology from young people. Vern. A lot of believers are constantly asking God to forgive them. Um, question is, is it necessary or is it right to ask God to forgive us for things that he's already done, past, present, and future? Uh, I, when I'm in communication with believers that are constantly Please forgive me, I did this. I sense a, a negative uh, destroying of joy for that individual. It's like they're always walking under a cloud of knowing they've done wrong. Uh, I know there's the positional forgiveness and uh, the relational issue. Could you elaborate on what we should do? Okay, so Vern, your basic question is, as a Christian, uh, do we or what is the context for asking for forgiveness? And sometimes the danger in that can be um, that we, we walk thinking, more, maybe I'll put it this way, thinking more about our sin than about the grace that saved us from our sin. Would that accurately summarize that? Well, let's, uh, let's give the concrete answer first and then, then dance our way around that a little bit. First um, John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a book written to believers. It is written to Christians. Um, 1 John in particular is written to Christians to assure them of their salvation. And so uh, by very black and white means, we can see that, yes, Christians are to confess sin. Um, That's to be a a regular thing that we do. Um, It is possible, though, and I I would agree with you on this, it's possible to be more focused on your sin than on the grace that saved you from the sin. So there's, there's, there's two extremes. Extreme over here on this side would be, I have been saved, I've been forgiven, everything that uh, I have done and ever will do has been taken care of at the cross. That's true. However, you are in the family of God, and when you misbehave in the family of God then you need to make things right with the Father in the family of God. Uh, put it to you this way, my kids, they could say, I'm in the Swartz family permanently. I can do whatever I want because I know you'll never kick me out. Um, that's true, but when we as a family sin against each other, we still have to confess that we have to deal with each other and, um, and we have to deal with the relational aspect. The other side of the spectrum is, as you described, the Christian who is constantly obsessed with confession. And I would say the word obsessed because I think what goes along with that sometimes is um, a lack of assurance of salvation. 
that there's not a real firm clarity that I am in Christ. I love His people. I love His Word. I love the cross. I couldn't live without Christ. And there's a lack of that assurance. And so confession of sin is mixed with and flavored by a desperation to regain God's favor, which is not right as well. And, and frankly, um, uh, all good things always have their, have their extremes. Uh, in the last 30 years or so, the biblical counseling movement, which has been very good and very helpful in the church, uh, a number of people in the biblical counseling movement have moved to this side of making everything in your life about sin. And I think we need to balance that with making sure that we understand grace as well. So um, I think balance is our key. Yes, we do confess sin, but not because we're, we're crushed by the fact that God is mad at us all the time. We don't walk around thinking that God's mad all the time every time we sin. If we did that, he's just mad, period, permanently at me. And that's, that's not the case. Christ took our sin on the cross. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I think there's probably an, an asking element that's implied there. That confession, um, it, it doesn't mean, uh, Lord, this is what I've done. One, two, three. But I'm not asking for forgiveness. I don't, I don't think we would say that. I think that uh, there's a joy in asking for forgiveness knowing that it's already granted. That at the cross, it's there. It's done. Sure. Yeah, we could say it that way. We are running late. This has been fun. Um, I know that uh, some of you have other questions. We'll do this every once in a while. We'll, we'll try different ways of doing it. Maybe have you uh, email questions or anything. Um, I hope that uh, you will give some serious thought to Bible Training Institute. Uh, I am just so excited about it. I, I have trouble sleeping sometimes thinking about it. Um, putting this together, uh, I want you to be excited about it. Don't be afraid. Um, I will hold your hand all the way through. Um, this is our first time through it, and so if everybody's dying, we'll figure that out. Or if I think that I made it too easy, we might add stuff to it. Um, Nate. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, the, the, um, ideally, the best way to do this is to start one time through. Um, when Grace Bible Church is running 10 million members and we have you know, 50 full-time Bible Training Institute teachers, uh, then we'll have a new BTI starting every semester. But we don't have that. So if, if, you're, if you come in late or uh, let's say uh, you can't start until this is why we're designating them fall one, spring one, summer one, Basically, we'll check off that you have done all of those semesters. If you start in spring number two, then you go on to summer two, fall one, spring one, summer one. Okay, so yeah, we'll, ideally it's best to start at the beginning, but uh, we'll divide it up that way. Good question. Uh, as soon as we can, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So, um, yes, sir. For, uh, Bible Training Institute? Oh, um, yeah, it is. I, they can at least attend. But here's my, this is a delicate issue. There's, 
my number one priority is to disciple the men and women who have committed to be members at Grace Bible Church. And so that's my priority. I'm never going to turn somebody away who says, I want to I learn God's Word too. I'm sorry, you can't do that here. Leave. Um, we're not going to do that. But uh, at the same time, uh, my first commitment is to uh, people here. And, and hopefully maybe to inspire them to take something similar to their own church. So good question. Any other BTI questions? You guys are such a delight. I, you just uh, you, you thrill and bless me every single week. I appreciate you. Why don't we pray and then we'll uh, be dismissed. Our Father, you are gracious and kind and good. Your word is so clear and yet um, so much of it can be understood by a small child. And yet, Lord, the greatest Bible scholars for 2,000 years cannot answer certain questions because your eternal nature is, is just beyond our ability to fathom. Lord, I thank you for those who are here tonight. I pray that you would uh, give those that you are calling to do Bible Training Institute, give them the courage to um, do this, to see the value in their own walk with you, to see the value in knowing you more and more, to see the value of maybe even reprioritizing their time in order to make more time for you. I pray that you would help them with this. Thank you for the questions that were asked tonight. I pray that the answers that were given were clear and were accurate, Lord. Um, according to your word. Lord, I pray for each person here. Until we meet again in the next Lord's Day, I pray that you would help them each to be worshipers of Jesus Christ each and every day in their conduct, in their prayers, in their reading of the word, in their time with you in every way. I pray that they would be worshipers day in and day out. And that as we gather together as a corporate body, that's simply the culmination, the, the highlight, the climactic point of a week filled with worship. Lord, thank you for those who are here. We pray for those who are not, that you would bring them back to us soon. We thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.